0: Hi everyone. Just a quick note before we get started. My wife is expecting to deliver our third child any day now, and with a newborn in the house, I'm expecting to take a little bit of a break. I still plan on doing the weekly newsletter, and on doing some short videos on the Instagram page, but the podcast will be taking a back seat for a couple months. Any folks feeling particularly generous during this time can sign up on Patreon or give a one-time contribution to the show through PayPal or Venmo. The links to all that will be in the show notes. I'm hoping that when the podcast returns, it will be better than ever. I have a lot of ideas of my own, but I really want to hear your ideas. How can I make the next round of Chattanooga Civics episodes the best yet? Send me an email, chattanoogacivics at gmail.com to let me know. I look forward to hearing from you. Now enjoy the show. This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Byrd. I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting the show, especially the Marks family and Stephen Culp. Well, we'll get started. Mary yeah. Kelly, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Two year update, kind of yeah. figure out what's been going on and what the future looks like. So, Sounds thank you for correct. your time.
1: Not at all. Happy to do it. I'm, 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 again, like from prior engagements, I'm just happy that somebody is actually interested in the stuff uh, and cares enough to ask the right questions. So, thank you for coming and doing it.
0: Awesome. Well, yep. I want to jump right in because I know we, we do have a limited schedule. Yep. Um, Looking back at the past two years and looking forward to the next two years and maybe beyond, yep. it seemed like the best way to frame this interview was through your own framework, the One Chattanooga Plan, yep. that was vetted by all these community members and and kind of promoted as the path forward exactly. for this administration. So I'm going to be drawing pretty closely from that framework yeah, that's great. to organize these questions. So we're going to start out with providing responsive and effective local government is one of those key goals. We're going to pick off where we left off last year. You said that building a good team was both your biggest accomplishment and your biggest challenge. And at last year, you were kind of hoping that your team was kind of getting settled in and ready to go. From the outside now, two years in, it, it looks a little bit like turnover in the administration is still high, both at cabinet level positions and in less public positions like code review and enforcement. Yep. Is this type of turnover typical in local government or is it still a challenge? And how is your administration working to ensure continuation of services in in light of these challenges? Yeah,
1: I, I, there it's a multifaceted issue as many things are, right? This one in particular, I, I would take some premise or some issue with the premise, right, particularly in upper management here that uh, I think, you know, um, turnover here gets a lot of oh, attention, but it's uh, but it's it, in the greater scheme of the entire um, 2,600 people in city government, I wouldn't call it, you know, um, unusual. Mm-hmm. Although in city government uh, you do have, particularly with an agenda as aggressive as ours, a fair amount of churn, right? And so there's some burnout. Uh, there's some, like, fit, you know, issues, Uh it, nobody bats a thousand, right? And and I definitely reject the premise fundamentally that uh, hey, once you're on board, you're inside the warm, mm-hmm. cozy arms of city government, you've just sort of got a job forever. That's definitely not the way I roll. So, um, but that said, you know, I mean, it's all been pretty normal stuff, right? We we haven't had any. Uh, uh, it's not a drama-filled uh, organization. I'm not a difficult person to work for. I would say below, you know, the the city. Uh, you know, the mayor's office level, the, the good old, you know, just workforce development issues come up, right? We've lost a lot of people in LDO because <laughs> the private market lures them away. Our pay scale here is not competitive. And this is what people, I mean, well, I imagine we'll dive into a lot of this later in terms of, you know what do we pay taxes for and and but again one of the looming issues is that we're not competitive with the nonprofit sector let alone the private sector uh, and so we are constantly again we rely on the one Chattanooga plan to recruit talent mm-hmm. but it's not hard for people to pick talent off because I mean we're not even really close um, to competing, uh, particularly at the upper executive levels or, you know, in selected areas like LDO of construction companies where they are right now, it's really easy to just, to just, you know, get picked off. And so, uh, that, that is, I think the bigger macro overarching factor here and it continues to be an issue.
0: Right. Well, that's actually a really good lead in yeah. to our next question. It is budget season right now. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get bogged down in this too long, but if you could just provide some brief highlights of this year's proposed budget and, and maybe talk about that piece, you know, yeah. pay scale and things like that.
1: Yeah. I, it's, this is not a big uh, bells and whistles budget. This is really just a continuation of, uh, of a, budget based around one Chattanooga plan has been said many times, you know, if you show me your budget, I'll show you your priorities. Right. And so, um, there is no tax increase. I think that's what most people were mainly relieved to hear. Uh um, um, but you know um, we're we're building on of significant reduction in homelessness, uh, a lot of lane miles paved, a lot of potholes. I mean, again, we will get into reviewing the one Chattanooga plan, but this is kind of you know again, this is just last year's budget 2.0. Um, We've got 40 million bucks uh, that we pledged over 10 years for roads, which is again a massive increase over the prior. And I, and I know there's still frustration around that, but we'll talk about that. Uh, the 18 million bucks for the Walnut Street Bridge, a lot of which is federal money, which is long overdue to do. Um, again, public safety is a big focus. Nearly half of the budget is for, is for CPD and CFD together. I mean, that's a big number. Between mm-hmm. uh, uh, again the raises that we gave last year, we obviously have to sustain. So that's a that's a big one. Um, we've got nine new firefighter positions, five new trucks in the budget. We've got three million dollars of uh, federal funds um, for to support affordable housing for 400 additional u- new units. Um, there's 1.6 million in the budget for new parks, including Province Park, Lynn Brook. Um, And a schoolyard pilot, which is interesting. It's kind of taking unused schoolyards, which are parks, and allowing those to be used for parks when school kids Mm -hmm. aren't there. Um, Also a million bucks for the uh, skate park renovation, which is, I think a lot of people are really excited about. So – Again, the responsive and effective local government piece is really the piece, as I've said, that kind of makes the rest of the stuff possible, mm-hmm. gives us permission to do the, the deeper work. So um, a lot of the budget is is really based uh, on that seventh principle.
0: Right. So one thing you mentioned is there's no tax increases this year. No. But talking about things like increasing pay plans, introducing the step plan, making all these historic investments in infrastructure. Uh, Do you think, how long do you think, I guess, those current tax rates can be sustained before we have to start looking at changing things around? Well,
1: one, one of the surprises of this budget year was that, frankly, we didn't think we would be quite as hemmed in as we were. But we neglected to factor in the state board of equalization, which, which essentially comes in and frankly prevents us from capturing the natural growth that we just experienced in the last couple of years. Again, there's an old adage Mayor Coppinger used to say all the time, you can, you can grow or you can raise taxes. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And in a, a tax structure like ours, you know, which is mainly sales and, and property tax based, um, growth should take care. Uh, of our issues provided that we're good stewards so i mean again it was a more difficult budget process than we anticipated it would be because the equalization board prevented us from capturing that growth but next year um should be considerably easier so um I, i i'm not i'm not concerned i mean we we've got some big priorities and we'll kind of hash those through um you know, with the public over the course of the next year, and and kind of take it from there. But but uh, absent any big new infrastructure investments, and I'm not saying we shouldn't make any. I mean, mm-hmm. we may we may they may be called for either for public transit or for parks, for example. Um, I, I don't see any looming. I mean, we're we're not sweeping anything under the rug. We're not we're not eating the seed corn or or raiding the rainy day fund. And this budget is a clean budget.
0: Awesome. Well, the, I want to move on to another piece of providing responsive and effective local government is the city website, which I think everybody would agree is in dire need of an overhaul.
1: (laughs) And that was, you know, one of many reasons I actually ran for mayor was just general disgust. It was a good, uh, it was a good metaphor for the state of (laughs) affairs uh, that uh, things were in.
0: Right. So to that end, the city has announced a $1 million contract to upgrade the city website. Mm-hmm. And this contract, last I read, was with a company based in Brazil. Yeah. With all the investment Chattanooga is making towards being a tech hub, why was a local firm not chosen? And is is $1 million really required for a website?
1: Well, working backwards, yes. I um, mean, again, there was an RFP. There's mm-hmm. always an RFP. Um, and anybody could respond to the RFP. And I think we had one local um, uh, firm respond. Mm-hmm. And it frankly just wasn't um close to the quality that we needed to for a bolt up redesign of a municipal website right i mean w- I, we buy a bunch of police cars too and they come from generally you know detroit uh, where ford churns them out mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean we could probably hire somebody to build a car in a garage in chattanooga i mean i am a localist i mean when we can find um Local vendors, we should use local vendors, but two things that are important to note about that. Um, one, we're a low-bid state. So, you know, where something's commodified, we have to go with the low bidder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I disagree with that. I think we should be able to create a framework where we can quantify the value of recirculating local dollars. And let's say that's worth 20% more to use a local vendor. I mean, I we're working on a policy that would withstand uh, legal scrutiny to do that. In this case, it would be pretty simple, right? Um, it, could we pay 120% more for a local vendor who could produce the same quality website? The, there was no close second here in terms of the people who, who threw their hat in to do the work. So, I mean, look, I always, always, forever would rather use a local vendor. But in this case, it just there, there was not one that responded to the RFP that was uh, – in the same league in terms of what right. they're going to produce, and uh, notably in that same economic uh, kind of framework, the value of the asset that will be produced is going to be, I think, um, you know, much, much more uh, economically and hopefully culturally valuable to the citizens of Chattanooga than um, than the value that would have been derived by using a substandard local vendor.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I want to move on to the next goal which is build a competitive regional economy. Yep. Um, just a broad question. Highlight some of the things your administration is doing to bring better jobs and higher wages to Chattanooga.
1: Well, I think the main thing is just working cheek by jowl with the Chamber of Commerce, literally just daily. I mean, uh, Charles Wood, I mean, um, I, I, yeah, I work with him um, on a daily basis, quite literally. And Jermaine and Freeman, who is my interim chief of staff, um, was my senior advisor for economic development. And that is how I spend a lot of my time. I was in New York for a solid week, um, doing media tours, f- you know, at the behest of the chamber to promote Chattanooga, uh, on a national scale. Um, I mean, and we've got the results to show for it. We've got, uh, 500 uh, new jobs just last year, 500 new jobs and over 50 million in capital investment. Um, Uh, Most of the job growth created, uh, 80% of is my number here, uh, in the regional economy in the last 10 years has been among middle-income manufacturing, logistics, and lower-income service jobs. And, uh, you know, we've been the beneficiary of of a ton of that. Um, I've got a great relationship with the state ECD commissioner, uh, Stuart McWhorter, and we've got some great announcements coming up. So I don't worry about that part. Mm -hmm. I mean, having been on the Chamber of Commerce board a couple times um, and knowing it inside and out – Um, That part is cranking right along. Uh, I think the issue, of course, is, A, making sure that those are higher-paying jobs, which we're very intent on, and, two, making sure that all of Chattanooga um, can take advantage of those higher-paying jobs, right, because another huge goal of the administration is to help close uh, the – racial wealth gap, um, and wealth gaps generally. Right. And, and, uh, if we don't create an educational system, um, that can train the workforce needed to do those higher paid jobs, then, then, you know, hell, we may make things worse. So that's where, uh, I have a really good partner in Marwamp. Uh, we don't see eye out on everything, but we see completely out on this one. And, um, and you know, work really closely, hand in glove, on school-related and workforce development issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's not any one thing I do here that's more important than that.
0: Great. Well, one thing when it comes to growing the regional economy, it, it seems that we've been trying to sell ourselves as a tech hub mm-hmm. for. I think it was more than a decade ago that we announced the Gig yeah. City, and it seems like the actual job creation from that has been lagging the kind of cheerleading that yeah. has been happening for a long time. There are some, you know notable exceptions to that.. Yeah. Um, but it seems to a lot of people that little progress has actually been made in terms of attracting larger companies without extending large tax breaks.. Yeah. How do you see the future of Chattanooga's economy? Do we continue to try and ride this wave of, of being a tech hub or take yeah. things in another direction or, or a little bit of both?
1: Well, I look, I think Chattanooga has always been best being the best version of itself. And the question, of course, is what is that, right? Um, I hear that again. I mean, I remember Gary Vaynerchuk said that to me and a lot of other people um, what, 10, 15 years ago, right? Like, don't try to be LA. And and there is a part here that, you know, that's always saying, We're gonna attract, you know, Twitter's headquarters here. We're gonna be I, the
0: next Come down yeah, I in mean, awesome well,
1: and the but here's the thing. The pandemic changed everything mm-hmm. fundamentally. And what we've found is that we have a long tail of talent that is that is granular, that has showed up here for the quality of life. And if the work from home movement is here to stay, and I think it is, um, at least to an extent, uh, and, and quality of life is a coin of the realm where, you know, talent can live anywhere it wants, then that really is probably Chattanooga's greatest opportunity. Now, that said, we're not going to give up on traditional company relocations. I I think a lot of what we've been working on behind the scenes on airport reform Mm -hmm. is key to that. I mean, we've been working very, very hard behind the scenes. A lot of what you see... Um, through the airport authority, which is independent, happens because, frankly, we make phone calls and we appoint those board members, and and there is real urgency behind getting better air service here. Mm-hmm. I think that's the last remaining obstacle to a company taking us seriously uh, because many of them, frankly, don't um, right now without better air service. And you got Nashville right up the road, and you got Atlanta just down the road. The other really interesting thing that I would, again, challenging the premise a little bit, mm-hmm. Charles Wood is quite um, vocal about this, Knoxville, just for example, um, just made a four hundred thousand dollar cash grant to a software development center, uh, and one hundred fifty thousand from the county. We haven't done anything like that in Chattanooga mm-hmm. ever. Memphis just gave a twenty uh, excuse me a two point three million dollar cash grant to ServiceMaster to expand. Um, and Nashville, Nashville, again, this is not like this is organic growth, just gave a 20-year pilot to the Bridgestone headquarters, headquarters project and $3,500 cash per job to expand, right? And, and that apparently is their number. Phillips uh, is coming in there. They're paying $3,500 per job cash, uh, $500 per year over seven years um and and we're not doing things like that here we could use the industrial development board to do things like that but i get really annoyed and frustrated when this narrative is like we're giving away the farm doing tiffs and pilots when we are not we're actually going to a you know gunfight with a bit of a butter knife you know uh because it's it's we're not giving away the farm right that said right i i do think i I consider my job to be kind of uh a Goldilocks problem. I probably said that to you in the last interview we did because i'm I'm not looking to just you know give away the farm and and have this torrid growth. I think we're on a really good trajectory, right mm-hmm. um, growing just fast enough to be able to fund city government and not have terrible congestion and traffic issues but but not slowing down to where we're um, you know um, where we're just in a state of torpor
0: right. Right. So one of the downstream effects of all of this growth that we're talking about, especially when you talk about kind of that talent pool that can work from anywhere, yep. is uh, an issue when it comes to affordable housing. Yeah. So all of these things end up getting tied together. Yeah, yeah. Your administration has announced a lot of programs related to affordable housing i was hoping you could just briefly summarize some of those
1: well i think you're probably going to talk to nicole Heyman at some point and you should because she's brilliant she was a great Mm -hmm. get again back to the talent acquisition piece from the city of new orleans and she is a rock star and she is hard at work um compiling the data we need to really know the landscape working with a group called the um the reinvestment fund and HRNA and RCL co and others to make sure we understand the, the ecosystem before we start trying to do surgery and applying tools. But um, we will have that action plan uh, very, very soon. And meanwhile, you know, that will then inform how we spend, um, You know, the hundred million dollars that we pledged to raise to to for this problem. We've already got 600 plus units already scheduled to become available over the next two years. I think what you're going to see is um, us working hard to make sure we get our fair share of latex dollars, which we absolutely have not in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily anybody's fault. We weren't really ready um, we didn't have developers who were interested in it, but, um, and this is getting into the weeds with, you know, housing geekery, but Litech is a hugely important primary tool for, um, uh, for affordable housing development, and, and we've done very little here mm. uh, lately. So, um, again, you'll see some news here probably maybe before this goes to air, but um, you, you will be very impressed with her when you talk to her. I will say, too, uh, last thing i've seen a lot of reports a lot of reports over the last month around this to inform this work and the the rise in home prices here cannot be explained simply by the rise in population mm-hmm. growth. I do think that um, runaway short-term vacation rental speculation had a lot to do with that. I think um, you know, I think what you had I mean we our old STVR regs were were lousy mm-hmm. and they were unenforced and unenforceable, and the new regs will be much, much better, and I think we've already seen people stop. Um, buying things on spec because, again, you know, you can put something on Airbnb and cash flow three or four times what you could on a monthly rental. And right. I think that was happening a lot more. And then, of course, what you've done is ratchet up the comp on that house for other houses. And so I think that had a lot more to do with it than we realize now. We, we're we using a company called Ptolemy now to disaggregate that data, and we we will know more. But I think that had something to do with it. And that uh, if it hasn't already stopped, it'll be stopping soon.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that ratching up the comp part right. of that puzzle because there's there's not actually that many short-term vacation rentals as a percentage of how many houses we have from the reports I've seen but those comps Start getting jacked up by uh, right. these speculators. Well, and, and again, a lot of that them- That has a huge downstream effect. So it's, it's yeah. more than just the percentage.
1: It is. There's no question about it. And again, you got to remember, too, that every one of those things that goes on Airbnb comes off the market for monthly rental, <laughs> which then increases the pressure on rental. Now, <laughs> in some cities across the country, you have literally lots of illegal stuff going on where- um, you know, uh, people have by disaggregating the data have, and I'm not saying this is happening in Chattanooga. It Absolutely happened in, for example, Kansas City, where you had um, big private equity groups um, coming in, kind of, we'll just call them large landlords, buying up large contiguous chunks of property and then colluding on rental prices. I hope they go to jail for it. They should. Uh, I'm not saying that happened here, but um, but we'll know soon mm-hmm. because we're we're I mean, there's lot the data to lawsuit. find it. Yeah,
0: mostly Nashville-based, I think. From yep. last I read, but it's Tennessee. It's a Tennessee lawsuit. Yep. well, uh, so it could that could hit here? That's part of the problem. I do want to keep moving on a yep. little bit and talk about homelessness. Um, your administration claims a forty percent reduction in unsheltered people in Hamilton County since last year. Yep. Point in time counts, so there's some fuzziness around those. Obviously, some people are skeptical about these counts, and I've even seen some suggestions. Strikes me as. A little extreme, but some suggestions that the reduction is simply due to deaths in the homeless community. Yeah. Uh, so, can you just clarify how your administration arrived at this forty percent number? And
1: well, again, we we didn't claim this. I mean, we, this is not. I mean, frankly, I was a little skeptical when I saw the numbers mm-hmm. that we don't do the freaking count. It's not – this is not – I mean, this is. This was my problem internally with this whole thing when it came out. I mean, I knew there would be skepticism because mm-hmm. the drop was so large, but this is not something we cooked up. The, the, the HUD requires every city to go do a point-in-time count. There's a mm-hmm. very, very specific methodology, and they came in and said, holy shit, guess what? You know, here, here are the numbers. We didn't gin the numbers up. I mean, they were—the numbers were the numbers. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, uh, pleasantly surprised that it reflected a lot of the hard work that we'd been doing. And we can talk about what that work was. But, um, again, I take particular exception to the idea that this is just some kind of propaganda that we ginned up. I mean, we weren't looking— uh, for this, But it it was remarkable in its face and obvious on its face. And, you know, HUD noticed, a lot of people noticed and said, holy mackerel, what are you, you know, mm-hmm. what are you doing there? But it was not something we internally at the mayor's office were like, we need to go. You know, we, we were just going to cook up some numbers. And the idea that somehow it's due to deaths is just insulting and ridiculous. It's just crazy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I mean, the, a point, the, the process for doing a point in time count is very well documented. Right. Um, and internally, right, I mean we arguably didn't do a great job of communicating all of this externally because that was my that was my big issue to begin with. Is I knew people would be skeptical, but this was not internally generated. I mean, it was something that the Regional Homeless Coalition, you know, did and, and said, hey, you know, look, clearly this is working. So, I mean, we're proud. I mean, we, we worked really, really, really hard to address homelessness, including changing horses with, uh, you know, the lead agency to... Mm-hmm. The Homeless Coalition bringing in multiple partners and just saying, Look, you guys have got to work together to solve this problem. Bringing in landlords to say, Hey, you know, we'll guarantee first months in security if you'll give these people a chance. Um, all of that, right? Um, if there's, I think, you know, the reason there was – and I drive this every day, right, because the, the main pod, but not the only pod of, of kind of uh, unsheltered people is up near the community kitchen. and I live right. in Fortwood, so I drive it to, to City Hall on purpose, you know, every day to and from work. And so I have kind of a, you know, thumbnail barometer what's going on. And, and I will say I think a lot of the skepticism stems from the fact that, um, frankly, the people that we were able to get housed – were what you would consider to be the low-hanging fruit. They were the people that were ready to be housed. Right. The people that we still um, uh, really need need housing are the are the worst cases. Are the people with persistent mental illness and the people that need um, permanent supportive housing. And <laughs> those projects, um, frustratingly, have taken a hell of a lot longer to come together. Uh, both the Ames uh, Sparrow project and the and the um, and the Airport Inn uh, project. And so when those get stood up, and will represent um, gosh, another probably uh, 300 units of permanent supportive housing, right. then we will really have made a dent in the toughest part of the population.
0: Right. So I hate to move on because no, I, no. I would like, like to yep. talk about that more, but I will hopefully be following mm-hmm. up with you know several of your cabinet members yep. and having some more in-the-weeds type interviews about these these sorts of things. Yep. So for all of our listeners, we'll get there. Yep. Uh, so I want to move on to the next goal in the One Chattanooga Plan, which is improve local infrastructure and public transit. Your administration has been putting a lot of focus on deferred road maintenance, uh, I think more than tripling the budget, if I remember correctly. Can you summarize the progress that has been made so far? Are there any upcoming projects that you would like to highlight? I know we talked about the uh, Walnut Street Bridge, and I think you might have mentioned the Wilcox Boulevard Bridge, but any other? Well, again, it all just seems like
1: boiling the ocean at this point, right? I mean, it's all just kind of drops in the bucket because, you know, what we came to realize is that even though we tripled the budget and we last year— uh, paved 63 lane miles, 40,000 potholes, 40,000 potholes. Uh, again, the big issue there is we assume that everybody agrees on what a pothole is and of course, a lot of times when you run over a, you know, a manhole cover that's not sunken correctly or a or a, or a, or a, road failure, right? It's like, you know, I went over a bump. That must be a pothole. Not a pothole. I and mean, They can't pave that but those are, but even still, right, it's, we have a massive amount uh, to catch up on and then, you know, there's a, element of civility and professional courtesy that's still alive in local government. So I'm, you know, I'm not here to drag my uh, predecessors, but um, we were way, way, way behind. And I mean, there's some graphics we could supply you to, to show you this, but um we should have been spending the 10 million just to stay even uh and and there there look there's an element of um of, of urban planning that if if we make it harder for people to drive then everybody will just hop on a bike right and I, I do not agree i'm i'm super pro bike super pro pedestrian and we can talk about urban planning strategies later but for crying out loud right we we have to keep up with uh, our main thoroughfares and we just fell so so far behind so mm-hmm. um and then of course, inflation hasn't helped that either, but gun barrel's next. I think uh, June 1st, that'll be done. We've already gotten a lot of calls saying thank you for that. Um, Bailey, Macaulay, Davidson Road all got paved. Dodds Avenue's coming up. claw yeah. is coming up, which um, is close to my house and I'm particularly excited about. But again, <laughs> we, we've, we've changed this. Uh, fundamentally in that we've, again, transparency and accountability are a big part of the administration. So anybody can go to city forward slash paving map and see uh, what's next. So
0: good. And Thanks if we find extra
1: money, I mean, again, I, I, we need to do more than just keep up. So, you know, we'll, we'll be sweeping any extra capital budget we can find towards projects like this. And we can also talk about, uh, you know, sidewalks and bike lanes and all that, but it's just which we are, we are playing a massive game of catch up.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I have noticed both in gathering questions for this interview and just generally spending time on social media, whenever a paving project gets announced, the question is always, well, why not this other road? Yeah. Well, and so can, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, It's just part of living in a city. Like, you've got to prioritize. Well, uh, I'll I'll give you an example.
1: I just had a a room full of people in here from Elder Mountain. Uh, Elder Mountain has um, a handful of houses, and I don't even, it'd be a really good podcast to unpack the history. I understand it's somewhat sorted. It would cost a million and a half dollars, 15% of the entire paving budget to repave Elder Mountain Road for the benefit of, of, you know, the 30 Houses at the top, uh, a handful of which actually pay city taxes, and somebody's going to have to repave that road at some point. Mm-hmm. But I have to look at that in the in the context of the 500 square miles of the city, right. and it, there's just not an easy answer, right? I mean, again, if you're the one of the people that lives up there, um, you don't care. But this is what happens when you don't keep up with uh, um, with with capital expenditures in the way that you should. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I want to move on a little bit and talk about kind of the flip side of infrastructure spending, pedestrian and cyclist facilities, especially in light of the recently adopted climate action plan. And also there's been an increase in year to date pedestrian cyclist involved crashes. Uh, I don't have the exact percentage on me, but just wondering what is being done to improve safety for pedestrians and cyclists and not just safety, but to encourage people to walk and to bike in recognition of these climate goals.
1: Yes, well, we've got a lot uh, happening there. We we happen to have a, a lot of folks in planning um, who you know who are quite passionate about this in their personal lives, and uh, so there's no shortage of um, of uh, shall we say focused uh, attention on the issue. But part of it, hey, just goes back to budget, right? Uh, again, this is somewhat ironic that comes on the tails of the conversation about road spending because which is it, you know, there's a limited pot, but a lot of the stuff around pedestrian and bike safety, I think is, is, has more to do with, with wise planning. Uh, I think for example, I mean, I ride my bike from home quite a lot and you know, we've got bike lanes in places where they're there isn't room for bikes and it's horrifying right and we fell victim to a pretty dumb thing by taking federal dollars to expand roads and they they'll give you the, they would plus up the match if you included a bike lane well so we got a bunch of bike lanes to nowhere because when we paved this road we would put a bike lane in but there's no so i you or know or they're just
0: kind of the leftovers yeah from and and the i've road
1: right and and i am my challenge to um the city planning team and the RPA is to create a more of a logical, contiguous bike lane route from the areas where people, uh, where the demand is, right? I mean, we ask for, you know, neighborhood input before we put in speed bumps and things like that. Why wouldn't we be prioritizing the areas where people want to be able to ride? And those aren't tough to figure out, right? Demogla- demographically, psychographically or otherwise. So, um, you know, I, I, think that that's, that's where the focus is. Uh, and I think um you know it, it is going to be more of a planning priority now we do have uh, some some grant money that's available and and that will that will help um but uh, uh I think we we've got 155 miles of new bike lanes that were created as of 2022 I think that's a year-to-date figure but again the um you know stringing them all together is is the tough one the sidewalk repair piece, you know our, our annual goal is 20,000 square feet plus, um, but again, we're just way far behind, I, I think. Uh, and then finally, I think the enforcement piece of this is also really important. Uh, Main Street in particular. I mean, I spent a lot of time up and down Main Street, and the speeding, and uh, we, we, we saw a lot of weird, you know, psychological sort of um, behaviors on the backside of COVID. I mean, you saw it the way that airplane passengers were behaving, you know, litter being thrown out car windows, and speeding, Right? Just this kind of a reckless abandon and behavior. And so enforcement's going to have to be part of this until people kind of get their heads back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so I, am uh, and, and it will be right. We've, we've had multiple meetings with, um, uh, uh, with CPD about increased enforcement in, in pedestrian heavy areas like Maine. And, uh, and that will continue to, that will continue to mm-hmm. happen.
0: So I'll move on and talk about CARTA very quickly. Yep. Um, A couple just follow-ups. In your campaign, you said you were exploring making Carta free on select routes. I know there's been a lot of changes in Carta. You nominated almost an entirely new board. Uh, So, you know, some of this might just be working itself out. But where do ideas like that stand and what else is being done to improve public transit in Chattanooga?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, that is kind of how it, you know, one of the more surprising things about this job when I got here. Was that city, there are certain city entities that either were city entities like the airport, um, but are now independent authorities. Um, Carta is one of them, right? Where you don't really have any direct control as mayor. It's not like calling up uh, public works and saying, hey, man, you know, get it together or do this or do that, right? Um This is one where you really have to kind of use the, frankly, the bully pulpit and and board appointments to to get what you want. Uh, And that was, again, we've got some really sharp new board members at Carta with a very, very clear charge and mission. And that is to take advantage of this, what I think is kind of an unprecedented overused term, but inflection point in time where we are with, you know, technology, with, again, Chattanooga's, we don't have a ton of investments in legacy infrastructure, uh, and, you know, having a city um, RPA or a city planning head in Dan Reuter, who is very transit-oriented, to kind of reimagine what Mm -hmm. what, uh, public transit looks like and really kind of scrub the decks and start over. So, uh, I mean, for example, as you probably know, you can't use – you can't get on a car to bus unless you have exact change mm-hmm. if you don't have a fare card. I mean, no wonder we don't have higher ridership levels, right? So, I mean, th- it's this is really going to be back to the basics right. and starting with fare boxes that are more friendly. I mean, in a perfect world, you can get on and tap your phone like you can to get on the New York City subway. Um, and then thinking with new technology partners like VIA. Uh, how public transit can work better for everybody, how how it can be more accessible, how it can extend down to micromobility, you know, and things like scooters and bikes. And uh, so, but this is going to be a very important year for CARTA in in terms of planning and transition. And I'm going to let them do their thing and we'll start back from there. I'm still committed to the fare-free thing. I do think that will, I think the way that that is likely to march out um, based on what the research I've done in terms of best practices is is fare-free by by need, right? Like so students, for example, uh, in many cities in the country can travel fare-free on, um, you know, uh, uh, on various transit lines and that's where I see it going. Because you can issue a card, put credits on that card right. and make it effective, effectively fare-free.
0: Right. And then one last question in the infrastructure piece. In our first interview, I asked what's one thing you were completely confident you could get done, <laughs> and you said you would retime traffic lights. Yeah, is that still a goal? And if so, what is the timeline on that?
1: It is absolutely still a goal. I'm reminded of that, you know, famous Mike Tyson quote that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. And <laughs> in this case, you know. Boy, howdy, city government. And, you know, it's really not city government as much as it is with every layer of complexity. And you know this in your day job, right? You get to the state, things get slower. You get to the federal government, things slow to a crawl. Um, so sounds easy to time traffic lights. And, and we are playing around with things at the margins. I think uh, I know some people have called me and said, 4th Street seems to be better, right? You know, uh, being able to roll with the lights from uh, – you know, from the off ramp all the way up to like the roundhouse. I mean, it's it's getting better here and there, but um, we've got um, a. I mean, there's like 300 plus intersections, uh, and, and so doing it at scale requires a, a a deep deep dive. And uh, we won a federal grant back in 2021 that is still slowly moving through uh, the funding release process. And, you know, um, God willing, <laughs> we can get a vendor selected this year and, and roll from there. Mm-hmm. But we were, once again, um, I think my first week in the office, that was like one of the first meetings we had. And I was told that best practice is to retime traffic lights every, oh, I don't know, three or four years. And we hadn't done it in eight And it's going to be another, right, two plus. So uh, once again, you know, digging out, but it absolutely remains a goal. And if it's the last damn thing I do, we will do it.
0: Well, how much time do we have left? I know you've got other minutes. Oh, you know, got a couple minutes. Yeah. Uh, So move through these real quickly. They deserve more time, but unfortunately we don't have it. Uh, One of your other goals is catalyzing economic vitality in the black community. You touched on this briefly in one of the earlier questions, but just how is this being measured and highlight a couple things that yep. you're particularly interested in. So, we, I forward. mean,
1: again, I've said this before, say it again, I mean, that now this would be news to you, but I mean, the more time I've spent in this job, the more I realize that that really is the the central, most important thing I can do that solves the most other problems from there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're lucky to be part of a uh, program that the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank and National League of Cities um, uh, puts on called the Southern Cities for Economic Inclusion, and mm-hmm. It, it, that's the work I was just in New Orleans for three day for three days uh, last week you know working on this with those other cohorts around um, around the south um, which all share these similar challenges and we learned some great things we got a lot we're going to be taking a field trip to the city of savannah that's doing a lot of stuff that we can learn from uh, just as one example but back to the kpis right it's it's median income it's net worth it's home ownership those are the simple ones.
0: Mm-hmm. So moving on, next goal is closing gaps in public health. Again, just briefly highlight a couple of accomplishments there. And then also if you could talk briefly about the mental health co-response unit with CPD. Uh, I haven't heard much news about that since it was... Originally announced. Yeah.
1: Um, well, the public health um, aspect was obviously novel, right? We brought that in, and it was during COVID, and that's where the bulk of the um, that's where the bulk of the of the work was originally. But you know, obviously, we all remember the terrible shooting um, that, that that happened, um, and we you know are haunted by that on a daily basis around here, and. The gun violence prevention efforts that we put together are living under community health, mm. and c- because we do see that as a public health crisis, and very frankly, um, we've we were part of a, a Bloomberg um, Innovation cohort where that's the goal that that the that the cohort here at the city chose was youth gun violence prevention, mm. and they've made a lot of a lot of progress in that regard. And guess what the punchline is? It gets back to mental health and um, and mentorship for young men who are uh, on the on the margins and in trouble. Right? So so that work continues, and I think what you'll see is that community health will continue to focus on mental health and the social determinants of health. And we will up, update the um, Chattanooga, the One Chattanooga plan soon, and that will be probably one of the more significant updates because that department will really be sharpening its focus there. Second question was, oh, the co-response unit. Yes. Yeah, it's happening. I'm, I'm pretty sure there, there were positions that were uh, that are in the budget this year to expand that, um, and so we're committed to that. It's been working extremely well, and and we're going to continue to expand it.
0: Awesome. And then, last goal is build a universal path to early learning. Yep. Again, just highlight a couple things. That well,
1: we, you know, we were frankly hopeful and frankly disappointed that that got carved out of um, of uh, Build Back Better and a lot of the federal infrastructure dollars because, I mean, like we're one of the only countries in the OECD world and the advanced economies that does not have some form of expanded uh, early childhood access. It's just a very, very clear best practice in industrial um, in the whole world, not just the industrial world. So, but we we have managed to raise raised the pay for our Head Start teachers. We've created 275 new early learning seats with uh, with ARP funds. Again, it's an expensive enterprise. Part of the issue as well is just the supply of people to do the work. And Caritza Mosley-Jones, who is a city employee and a school board member, to her infinite credit, um, had the idea to create a new Future Ready Institute at Tyner uh, for early uh, care and learning. And I think that will kick off this fall, but that will help create a pipeline of early childhood suppliers, who themselves you know, workers may very well become entrepreneurs and start their own centers. And the hope is that that will kind of kick off uh, uh, some organic growth um, in in the childcare market, which is largely still a uh, kind of a disorganized small business market.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, any closing remarks?
1: Uh, no, um, no, not at all. Again, I mean, it's uh, I'm not bored. I mean, again, <laughs> this is it is a grind, but. Uh, um I, i'm i'm on about my fourth year of of unfaithfully reading the daily stoic on not a daily basis but uh that book has always kind of helped me get through. And it's odd. This morning's entry was about you know the meaning of life, doing being about meaningful work. And God knows that's what this is, right? I mean, it's uh, there are good days and bad days, but uh, I really, really believe fundamentally that Chattanooga is an extraordinary city, um, and that its best days are ahead of it, right? And so helping to be part of that and and pushing uh, the multiple rocks up multiple hills is. Uh, it's exhausting, but it's fun, and, uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's good to see progress.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Mayor Kelly, you. so much for your time. Thank you, Nathan. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at chatcivics, or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening.